Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. With me are Sharp Smith, our technology editor, and John Salentano, our business editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence, a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. It looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. Our Q4 issue is available now. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com intelligence. So, Mr. Celentano, this week you're going to tell us about Crown Castle. Yes, Leslie, you know, Crown Castle is one of our premier tower companies, um, uh, um, certainly that we consider among the big three tower co's in the U.S., reported its uh, first quarter 2022 earnings this week, and uh, everything is upbeat. Uh, The company uh, came in with um, um, site rental revenues of uh, $1.6 billion that were up um, over the $1.4 billion uh, in the first quarter of 21. Um, that site rental tally includes um, uh, about 68% from towers and the balance from uh, fiber and small cells. <clears throat> but on a percentage basis, those total site revenues grew 15% year over year. And that includes a total of core leasing, which includes 10 in additions to establish lease agreements, along with price escalators. They, they together account for 9% of that 15. And then the balance is organic revenue growth from, um, 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 from, from site rental buildings. You know, the company is, is really well positioned. First of all, it has a formidable portfolio of towers um, uh, as, as of the end of the first quarter. Crown Castle operates uh, around 40,100 towers, um, predominantly in the major markets uh, in the U.S. So the company um, uh, indicates that it's positioned in, uh, in the top 100, what we call basic trading areas, or the top 100 markets in the, in the country. And about 72% of those towers are in those top 100 markets. Um, that number actually was flat uh, from the year-end uh, uh, 2021. There was some movement. Uh, towers were added in the in the in the high-growth, high-density markets, and they uh, either de- decommissioned or sold off towers in some of the uh, uh, more rural markets. But um, you know, their tower um, tenancy—the number of tenants per tower—actually increased to 2.4 in the first quarter compared to 2.3 a year ago. That may seem um, uh, like a small change, but it indicates that they are adding uh, to their tower sites. Uh, certainly DISH is a contributor. DISH has con- contracted for about 20,000 or about half of Crown Castle sites as it builds its, uh, its, its uh, the fourth national 5G network. Um, but, you know, it, it, 
Crown Castle points out that um, unlike its competitors who have both domestic and international operations, uh, the company is focused on the U.S. It considers the U.S. to really offer the highest growth opportunities at the lowest risks. And, um, you know, it, it, in addition, it has a portfolio of infrastructure that it's able to serve a variety of applications. Uh, besides towers, the company has 115,000 small cells either on the air or under contract. About 60,000 of those are in backlog. It's uh, at, a, at a deployment rate of about 5,000 small cells a year through this year, but then beginning next year and for several years uh, subsequent to that, we're, it, it projects it'll be at about a 10,000 year small cell deployment rate as um, the big mobile carriers uh, move from uh, having built out their network using macro cells on towers to start to densify their networks in major cities and in urban areas using small cells. Um, certainly the company is, is participating in, in sort of edge data center applications. It has an investment in a company called Vapor.io, which we've covered before. Vapor.io is deploying modular edge data centers in about 36 markets around the country and uses uh, Crown Castle fiber in those major markets to connect those data centers together. Um, you know, T-Mobile is, uh, is Crown Castle's largest customer, uh, accounting for uh, uh, over a third of its annualized uh, site rental revenues. Uh, AT&T and Verizon have about 19%, and then the balance of, is everybody else. But you know, the company put in place master lease agreements um, through last year, and um, right now, it's uh, it's projected uh, receivables based on those contracts uh, is roughly 37 billion uh, over over a weighted um, contract term of uh, in the next seven years. Uh, so it's uh, very well positioned. Uh, it's it's uh, benefiting from the all the activity in 5G builds, and um, and expects to to um, uh, see uh, that ramp continue over the next uh, through certainly through 2022 and over the next several years with very positive guidance that provided on this call. So we'll keep we'll keep a watch on it, Leslie, and uh, update as we go along. Thank you, John. Sharp, you're going to talk to us about Mercury Broadband and CBRS. Yes, Leslie. Um, uh, you know we we hear a lot about when the government starts a fund and, uh, and, and gives uh, a lot of companies uh, money, implement uh, wireless. And uh, usually after that, the only, uh, the only thing that we hear about is uh, when someone is doing something wrong with that money. And uh, today we have a feel-good story. Uh, one of the winning bidders, uh, I think one of the biggest winning bidders in the uh, Rural Digital Opportunity Fund auction, uh, a company known as uh, Mercury Broadband, put out a press release and uh, uh, let us know that uh, uh, they are working uh, to, uh, to use a CBRS band to, uh, to provide uh, fixed wireless access radios, equipment, and software uh, that's uh, from, uh, from Airspan uh, to, uh, to expand construction and operations of its rural Midwestern uh, broadband network. And uh, I think this is good news for, for two reasons. One is they're, uh, they're using the uh, RDOF uh, funds for wireless. Uh, and uh, uh, there's, you know, there's sort of this back and forth question of, uh, of whether broadband means uh, fiber or, uh, 
or or wireless. And uh, so, I think it's I think it's a good uh, a good move on their part to uh, to use the uh, the wireless because uh, it's so much more cost effective and uh, and fast to uh, to to be able to deploy it. Um, it also is uh, is interesting to me uh, that they're using a uh, uh, an open RAN uh, operation like Airspan, and uh, we found out that uh, they're using uh, Airspan's Airspeed 1030 uh, radios, and uh, they'll be uh, uh, they'll be deploying them uh, across Kansas, Missouri, Indiana, Michigan. And uh, uh, initially, and then later on, uh, they will uh, they will deploy in Ohio and Illinois. So this is no small contract, and uh, and it's a um, it's it's a, uh, a a big move forward, I think, for uh, uh, for closing the digital divide and uh, sort of letting us know how how they're going to do it and what vendors are going to be involved. In March, um, Samsung and uh, Company called T3 uh, Broadband announced that uh, uh, they would be working with uh, with uh, with Mercury, uh, providing uh, basically uh, Samsung's latest CBRS solutions, including the 64T, 64R, massive MIMO radios, and uh, something known as a CDU50 uh, baseband unit. And um, in uh, that configuration is going out over uh, 500 uh, fixed wireless access sites in Kansas and Missouri and Indiana. Um, so uh, I think it's it's nice to to see uh, our tax dollars at, at work, as we like to uh, as we like to say, and. Um, and I think it, it also ties into a story that I'm working on for uh, for Monday, uh, which is uh, another uh, article that or story where they, we got lots of information about how uh, Duke University is working with uh, Dish Wireless, a company called Internet2, and Cisco to create a uh, neutral host uh, network pilot using also using CBRS. Uh, 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 spectrum, and um, I think there's there's been a couple of uh, reports that I've heard of people uh, uh, throwing some shade on uh, private networks and uh, saying, you know, why isn't it, why aren't they moving any farther, faster, blah blah blah, and um, and you know, it's it's early days. These things just don't happen overnight. Uh, when you look at there's a lot of new players. Uh, that's another thing that's sort of fascinating to me is uh, uh, a company called Internet2, which uh, near as I can tell is, uh, they call themselves a community of uh, 2000 members, which collaborate, contribute to enable, quote, empower and transform research, education and scholarship. And um, they're working also, obviously, with uh, with with Cisco to uh, uh, build out a uh, uh, this Duke network, and I can tell you what: uh, if Duke is doing this and it works, everybody's going to do it. It replaces uh, the rather clunky system of having 
cellular, uh, basically uh, ma uh, macro uh, tower communications, you know, backed up by some from small cells and Wi-Fi. So you have two incompatible systems. And uh, so basically that what this does is it creates one system uh, and uh, um, the private system, which will roam automatically over to the public system where it, when, uh, when it needs to. So uh, just an awful lot going on. And I know it's, I know it's early days. I know we're in trial phases, but when you're talking about, you know, groups like, you know, Duke University uh, and, and, uh, and Mercury Broadband, I, I think we're in, uh, we're in, we're in good position to, uh, to see private networks really take hold and take off in 2023. You're right, uh, Sharp. That's a, that Mercury broadband story is a good feel-good story. It, and so often we hear about these huge pots of money that the government is handing out. Um, and we don't always, we hear a lot about waste, but we don't always hear, and here's what's good about what's going on um, with the money. The other story, Duke, as a Maryland fan, I'm going to withhold comment on that. <laughs> So that is a good story. I mean, CBRS really is opening up a lot of possibilities for access to low cost or, or relatively almost no cost spectrum that we didn't have before. You know, to deploy a wireless network, you needed licensed spectrum by and large or completely unlicensed. And then you take your chances. But I think CBRS is a nice medium, a happy medium to, to help um, really um, enable these kind of deployments. And uh I expect we're going to hear more about it. All right. Um, for a minute, I forgot what I was talking about. The FCC had a meeting this week. One of the things they did, they proposed a more than $660,000 fine against global carrier Trufone. Trufone apparently exceeded uh, the foreign ownership limits, and they didn't tell the FCC who owned them. Uh, they didn't tell them for about at least a couple of ownership changes until years later. They filed, um, they were owned more than, what is it? You can't be owned more than 25% for a foreign owner. And they changed hands at least a couple of times. And they were owned at one point by a couple of gentlemen who had dual citizenship, one with Russia, one with Cyprus. So they, Trufone filed, uh, got around to filing the ownership information with the FCC in 2011, but it was wrong. It wasn't until 2019 that they corrected it. So the FCC said, you know, no, <laughs> this uh, violates our rules. And FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel said it, this kind of thing undermines our ability to, to assess foreign investment and licenses under the Communications Act, and it denies us the information we require to make basic assumptions about national security. Uh, we make clear today this is unacceptable, and we hold those responsible to account. Trufone has uh, a certain amount of time, 30 days, to respond, and the FCC hasn't made the penalty final yet. They're going to take the evidence that Trufone submits um, into consideration, and then they'll make a final decision. Um, 
we had reported recently that since Russia invaded Ukraine, the FCC was during, doing a thorough review of all the 214 licensees to uh, check for ownership, basically. And, you know, they, they find China Mobile recently, they find them and they kick them out of the US. And there was another Chinese telecom, they did the same thing to all for um, basically lying to the FCC. You, you know, you can't really do that and be a licensee. There's certain, uh, there's certain characteristics you need to have. So this was the first uh, fine for a Russian-owned entity, and we'll see if there are others as the war continues. That's a wrap for this week's news. Thank you for listening to Inside Towers Week in Review. For a complete rundown of all the week's news, check out our Saturday edition. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.